Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 21st, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, good to have you all both on at the regular Sunday time slot. Um, we're back to, to normal schedule, and we got us a guest this week uh, for the second time um, from the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse. Dr. Anthony Shergosky is going to join us and discuss Wisconsin politics here in about 20 minutes into the show. But until then, there's just a lot of different stories that, that need covering, and um, one is uh, a kind of a sad political story, particularly for us, the, of those in Georgia um, that are, but this is someone that's you know, nationally known. And Tim, since uh, you knew him best and the longest, and he's from your home county, why don't you kind of uh, honor the life of Mr. Bobby Lee Cook? Yeah, we lost a great man, and the Democratic Party lost a great friend. And for many of us up here, uh, we lost a personal friend because I guess two-thirds of the people in this county uh, knew Mr. Cook on a personal level since he spent um, most of his life and his entire law career uh, here. Uh, in politics, he was a state representative, a state senator, even served a term as a state court judge. Uh, now, when I met him back nearly 30 years ago, he had assumed the role of advocate for our causes, uh, party activists, especially with personal appearances and uh, speeches. He was he was in demand for those, and, and as a party contributor, he he raised a lot of money for the party and 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 helped out a lot of candidates, and he helped our local party in just a, a myriad of ways. Uh, he he was a central figure in, in, in helping us to organize the local party. And a matter of fact, he swore in our first group of officers at an, at an event at Dowdy Park in downtown Somerville back in 1996. He spoke, as, as you know in particular, David, multiple times at our events. Uh, speakers at our dinners would request that he introduced them, uh, uh, John Lewis, Max Cleveland, uh, Cleveland uh, Michael Thurman, uh, Governor Barnes, Kathy Cox, Thurbert Baker, Jason Carter, Tom Murphy. That, that's just who I could think of off the top of my head whose staff would call me and ask me, is Mr. Cook available to introduce, you know, who, whoever we're sending? Uh, and and he and he never he never turned a request down. One time he even came back early from New York City to uh, perform that role. I believe it was for Max Cleveland. Um, 
I've heard very few public speakers who who I thought approached him. Uh, he he was a marvelous speaker, and for those of us that were fortunate enough to hear him on many occasions, it, it was just always a treat to do so. And in private, he was he was such a nice fellow and uh, gave a lot of his time and. Um, I guess we looked at him kind of different up here because we'd run into him on the street and he had asked me, you know, how Jackie was doing my wife or, you know, stuff like that. We'd see him at at Armstrong's eating a hamburger. You know, he was he was Bobby Lee Cook, our, our neighbor, and, and not this larger-than-life Matlock figure that, was involved in Iran Contra and uh, uh, Wayne Williams and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil and 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 all of this stuff. Uh, I, I, I'm sure gonna miss him. Uh, I'll miss going by his office, talking on the phone with him, seeing him around town. Uh, but he he was truly a he he was truly a great citizen of of this county. The gentleman from Chattoogaville. Yes, and you mentioned the Matlock um, TV show. People say that he was the inspiration um, for that character played by Andy Griffith. I guess it was that in the 80s or the 90s that show was on. Actually, it it ran throughout the 80s and into the 90s. That show was on a long time. Yeah, so that's uh, people may know that persona. You know, he was the inspiration. Uh, for him, if um, if you will. Well, uh, before I move on, Catherine, any thoughts? Did you get a chance to hear Bobby Lee Cook speak ever or know of him? Oh, I knew of him, but I never heard him speak. But just reading about him, you know, he really, he was really, uh, um, it sounds like a great friend and a great supporter of the party, but also a, a great lawyer. So we lost a powerhouse there. But what a great yes, life he did. led, long yes. and uh, productive life. Yeah. Yes, most definitely so. Um, well, now we'll kind of turn to some um, other political topics. And uh, this past week, uh, there's been winter storm snow across the country. We in our little corner of the country have, have missed it. Um, uh, at least any kind of accumulation. But in Texas, as far down as probably further than San Antonio, but I know I heard as far down as San Antonio, there was substantial snowfall in the past few weeks. Um, and, and snow is, you know, in an unusual place, is difficult enough. But it completely knocked the power grid off in certain places. And people have been um, without heat and power to the point where it is really a um, natural disaster emergency situation, um, and people, I believe, have unfortunately perished. Um, And then because it's gone on in such a way and people have looked into how they've um, managed their power grid, it's become a political topic. Um, It's gone past that, you know, hey, you know, Republicans or Democrats don't make the snowfall to how did we prepare for this ahead of time? Catherine, you've probably seen the pictures, heard the stories, and we hadn't even gotten into how the uh, junior senator of Texas handled himself. Um, 
what are your thoughts about what you've heard about what's going on in Texas? Well, I read a pretty de- detailed article um, earlier this week about how the grid um, sort of doesn't work and what went what what went wrong. And uh, you know, they have very they have very little regulation in uh, Texas. They've they managed to keep their grid off, you know, uh, in Texas only predominantly. So they have avoided some of the federal regulations involved in electric uh, grids. And it just sounds like, from what I read, that they just weren't, they were, I wouldn't say cutting corners, but they were avoiding uh, making some upgrades that would have protected them in situations like this. Of course, it's a very unusual situation, but... Um, there were definitely um, signs that, you know, prior to this week or last week, like for a couple of weeks, people had been reporting, well, we're worried about ice on the lines and how that's going to impact this. And we're worried about this and we're worried about that. But there was really no response um, to that. And they just kept saying, oh, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And, um then th- there's a great account uh, in this one piece I read about how they were watching that, you know, they've got one of these big like screens in one of these rooms and they're just watching the grid just fail. All the green lights are turning red. And then they had to go in and do some massive um, uh, force blackout so that they could save energy um, for the important things like hospitals and police departments and stuff. So I think the bottom line is they weren't ready for this and they probably could have been if they had been paying attention to what was going on. Um, but like you said, you know, people are, it's horrifying. I mean, there, and it also had an impact on the water. So they've got all these people with no water and no power and, uh, like you said, you know, people are suffering. Yeah, uh, Tim Cather mentioned the deregulation as a as a key part of this because had they um, let the power, you know, cross uh, into other state lines, then they probably could have, you know, utilized New Mexico, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Arkansas type services and, and helped in some ways. Now we know certainly Texas is a big state, and I'm not sure exactly which areas suffered more than some areas, but it was a, a wide area, and it's a state with the second largest population in the U.S. Um, politically, how do you think this plays out? Well, 26 million people are not very happy tonight, and uh, many of them vote. There, there was one municipality, major municipality in Texas that uh, – was connected to the national power grid and and not the Texas power grid. And that was the city of El Paso, where Beto O'Rourke is from. Beto O'Rourke, by the way, who stayed in Texas and organized phone banking and what these volunteers were doing were checking on seniors, Uh, poor people, people at risk during this thing by phone to make sure they were okay. Um, 
um, AOC, who they like to kick around, raised $2 million to send down there. Uh, and the optics uh, for the Republicans were were were, were bad, to, to put it mildly. Uh, you mentioned Ted Cruz as, you know, the king of what was he thinking. I guess he wanted to prove that uh, somebody can cross the Mexican border and have a better life for their family, you know, or something. Um, Governor Greg Abbott yapping on about the Green New Deal, which, you know, by the way, does not exist except as a progressive talking point. I mean, it's not policy. What was what was he thinking? And Rick Perry, did you hear what he said? He's listen to this now. Hang on to your seats, folks. Texas will endure blackouts to keep the government out of their business. Really? I mean, is he serious? What is wrong with these people? Uh, their their grid is falling to pieces down there because they didn't want any regulation. I I wonder if they'd like to have a kickstart on that. And by the way, the president did declare Texas uh, a major disaster area. This this is what real presidents do if Donald Trump's listening to us tonight, right? <laughs> yes. Well, um, there's so much here. Um, one thing I did hear this morning on CNN, there was one of the officials in Texas that said, oh, we welcome – um, Representative Estacio Cortez and her help across party lines, you know, because when she was just helping Texans, she wasn't helping Texas Republicans or Republicans. She was just helping Texans that could be among yeah. any party. But that told me that they just think because Texas has, you know, had a, so many Republican officials lately that like the whole state is Republican, but they don't realize that while their state did stay in the Republican column, it keeps trending, and and really poor policy like this is not going to help them. And then, you know, if the grid would have gone down because of, you know, poor re- – you know, just not wanting deregulation or, or regulation from the federal government and doing it on their own, and they would have said, well, we got to do some things different, they might not suffer too much. But then you have the nonsense about the Green New Deal because it in no way – has anything to do with what happened here. Of course, you have Ted Cruz's vacation to Cancun that he blames on his daughter. He blames on the wife's text strand, everything else, takes no responsibility, gets mocked everywhere. Um, he is so lucky he's not up in 2022. Uh, forget the trend lines, I think, for you know whichever party is, is trending nationally. Uh, I think it would be a huge issue for him. And then um, – What's another thing that's really strange about you know the Republicans slamming alternative forms of energy is if you really uh, you know read and learn. I was finished listing a book um, called the the Libertarian Walks into a Bear, and there's a lot of these extreme anti-government preppers that are up in this town in in, in um, uh, New Hampshire. There's also a guy Roscoe Bartlett that uh, was a congressman from Maryland. He's also like a an extreme prepper. Um, anti-government, and those people are really big into solar energy because they th- they say, you know, oh well, if if we get our uh, power from the sun, we don't have to mess with others, we don't have to mess right. with the government. 
So therefore, if you have your own wind source, your own solar source, if you really want to be separated from everybody, um, that helps you. And so therefore, these renewable energy sources are not necessarily, um, you know, big government all the times, if you will, if you, you know, subscribe to this uh, theory of thinking. So I thought all that was very interesting. Now, let's, let's drill down on Ted Cruz. You know, we all know that when there's some kind of emergency, uh, you go to the emergency, even if it ends up being, you know, more photo ops than anything else. But you go and you help if you're an elected official because it's just the right thing to do. You're a public servant, therefore you have to serve the public. But Ted Cruz instead, hey, Texas, no no power, miserable place to be. Let's go to Cancun at this, this hotel I know. And, and I saw the text strand, and I don't know if it was – uh, Heidi Cruz or one of Heidi Cruz's friends that thought of it. I don't exactly know how the daughters got thrown into it other than Ted Cruz putting them there. Um, but then Ted Cruz mm-hmm. comes back by himself. Um, Catherine, politically, how much damage did Ted Cruz do to himself this past week? I think a lot. I think it was, uh, it was a, a big faux pas. He just, I mean, I, I guess my thought was, why didn't he just put his kids and his wife on a plane and let them go to Cancun? I mean, I can understand, like, you want your kids to be safe, and they were probably whining. And, you know, I, I understand that, and I wouldn't really have any objection to that. It's not the best move, but, but for him to go down there, too, and then to claim – Oh, well, I was coming back anyway. I just had to get them settled. Like, what do you have to do to get someone settled at a Ritz-Carlton? Like, it's, it's not that hard. I'm sure they're used to it. Obviously, she knew exactly how much the room rate was. She knew where it was. Like, this. So, but, yeah, I think he made a – it was a big mistake on his part uh, to fly down there. And also to be so cagey about it. And it was it it was all around bad bad visual for him. Yes, Tim, does this kind of underpin something about Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz seems like a pretty smart guy, but he seems to lack that human connection that's so important for politicians. And then he still seems to like he wants to maneuver and try to possibly become a more national figure, albeit president, vice president, you know, Senate majority leader, some, you know, huge role down the road. But won't these shortcomings he has as far as connecting with just regular people in regular times or times of crisis um, be his undoing? I think it's going to be part of his undoing. He comes across as as what he has always railed against, which is the Eastern elites that are out of touch with the average person. Well, I mean, he's he's Ivy League educated himself, and I have nothing against that. Some of our greatest leaders in the history of this country have been have been educated there, but he rails against that sort of thing, and then he pulls this stunt. And I'd like to say this too. Two people ran in that race in 2018 between him and Beto O'Rourke. And the guy that didn't get the job was the one that stayed there in Texas this week doing the job while the other one who won the job took off. 
there's his problem. He wants the job, but he does not want to show his constituents that he's actually going to roll up his sleeves and do the job. And people are going to remember that, especially when they're cold and he's living it up, you know, in Cancun, and they're doing without water. And and some of them, bless their hearts, are actually uh, dying as a result of this thing. Uh, and yeah, yeah, they're they're going they're going to remember him for for pulling this stunt. And 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 another thing, guys, what about the lies he was told? He was telling them how easy it was for reporters and others to catch him in them. They're going to remember that too. Yes, I think this one sticks to him. For a while, yeah. Well, we're going to switch gears now. We're going to go next to some place you'd expect this kind of snow, not Texas, and we're going to go up to uh, Wisconsin and join us. Like I said, for the second time from the University of Wisconsin Lacrosse, Dr. Anthony Shigoski. Welcome, Anthony. Hey, great to be with you. And it's funny you mentioned that we actually did get a couple inches of snow here today. So, hey, I <laughs> guess it's no surprise though for Wisconsin this time of year. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of expected. Uh, you know, this wouldn't even be a news story in Wisconsin. Of course, if your power grid <laughs> failed, it would, but y'all have to take more care of it um, because of that. Well, we're going to just – we know there's a ton of elections coming up um, in less than two years in Wisconsin. There's possibly, depending on what's going on, the census redistricting and all kind of other things in your state. And so I just want to start off with that Senate race. Um, Ron Johnson – I guess he's multi-term, but he doesn't seem like he's that established incumbent that just, um, you know, wins because he puts his name on the ballot. Kind of where does he stand in your state? It's a great question. And when you look at the overall state of play in the battle for the United States Senate, and you look at those pickup opportunities for the Democratic Party, I think you would say that Pennsylvania is the best uh, pickup opportunity for the Democrats. But I do think the Ron Johnson seat would rank second on that list in terms of prime Democratic pickup opportunities. And the field and the state of play is a little bit uh, stuck right now because we don't know if Ron Johnson is going to run again. Uh, He has said in the past that he was only going to serve two terms. We know that People often change their minds after they make uh, pledges like that. So we're not entirely sure what his move is going to be. That has things on a bit of a pause right now. We do have a couple of Democrats in the race, but they are kind of uh, not the top tier sort of candidates. I think the top tier candidates are really waiting to see what exactly Ron Johnson is going to do. And Ron Johnson is obviously a polarizing figure nationally and he's a deeply polarizing figure here in wisconsin he's gotten a lot of negative press here lately for being kind of the face of the opposition to the direct stimulus payments and then more recently with his preposterous statement that what happened on january 6th didn't to him look like an insurrection so it's going to be an ugly campaign it's going to be a a a harshly fought campaign if he runs for re-election What is safe to say is that it's going to be a close election either way. I mean, you know, regardless of how polarizing Ron Johnson is, regardless of where he stands politically, it's going to be a five-point margin either way. It's just a matter of which way does it go. Yes. Now, let's say he um, doesn't decide to run. 
I'm assuming if he runs, he wins the nomination. Um, who do you yep. think steps in as the Republican or runs for the Republican nomination at that point? There's uh, some chatter about Paul Ryan maybe getting in, interested in a race in that event, but we also have you know former Congressman Sean Duffy and some uh, members of the Republican congressional delegation like uh, Mike Gallagher potentially or Brian Stile, who actually now holds Paul Ryan's seat. So. Like I said, I think things are a little stuck right now in terms of the 2022 election. And in Congress, that's really for two reasons. Like you mentioned, we are still waiting on redistricting. And redistricting is a no-holds-barred, bare-knuckle affair here in Wisconsin. So a lot has to be determined when it comes to redistricting. Plus, you have people who haven't made their intentions clear for 2022. So I think there are a lot of things that need to sort of fall into place right now and a lot of things that uh, we a lot of questions that are unanswered and you know once we get a better sense of where redistricting is heading and certainly once we get a sense of what ron johnson is going to do then i think you'll start seeing people make their move and the pieces start falling into place Yes. Well, I wanted to switch over to the Democratic side, but you mentioned Paul Ryan. And normally, you know, six years ago, if you'd have said the the former congressman, the former Speaker of the House, the former VP nominee wants to run for a Senate seat, well, he probably gets that nomination. But this is someone that did not get along with Donald Trump um, and probably not a lot of that was how Donald Trump got along with Paul Ryan uh, when he was Speaker of the House. So in a Republican primary, if Donald Trump decided to say, I'm supporting someone else, in Wisconsin, does Donald Trump have the kind of pull in the Republican Party that that would pretty much snuff out a, a candidacy, even if someone with the um, pedigree of Paul Ryan? He does. He does have the pull to do that. And I think that is what might keep Paul Ryan out of the race. And that is the ultimate wild card in any of these upcoming primaries, because I do think that if Paul Ryan were to run for the Senate in the event that Ron Johnson stayed out, I do think it's possible that Donald Trump would weigh in and endorse someone else. And that would be devastating for Paul Ryan's candidacy because I don't think he has the pull in Wisconsin that he once did, especially because the state party here has really been taken over by the Trump wing of the Republican Party, as have, you know, most state parties nationwide. But it's certainly been the case here that, you know, the party of Scott Walker, Paul Ryan and Ryan's Priebus is really now the party of Donald Trump. And so he could be a big factor in primaries if he were to weigh in here. Yes. Now, I'm looking on um, Politics One, which is usually a pretty good source for who's running, and um, they have Julian Bettino, Alex Lassery, Tom Nelson all seeking the nomination so far. But you're mentioning that some uh, more substantial figures may get in on the Democratic side. Who are some of those folks? Yeah, and, you, you know, with, with all due respect to kind of those candidates you listed, they are not sort of the top-tier recruits that – people like Chuck Schumer are looking at. Uh, we have uh, basically an entire executive branch, all of the statewide elected officials, with the exception of Ron Johnson, are Democrats. And so that does give Democrats some potential candidates. We have our secretary, uh, uh, we, have, we have multiple um, kind of statewide elected officials 
such as the lieutenant governor and the attorney general and the and the state treasurer who are taking a serious look at this race i think and and really do view ron johnson as vulnerable i mean the money is just going to pour in from across the nation if you know to whoever is the nominee against ron johnson so this is going to be just a spectacularly expensive senate race and uh, so whoever the candidate is for the democrats fundraising is not going to be a problem and honestly the fact that so much cash is going to be pouring into the state i think that makes it very attractive for some of these top tier candidates uh in in the democratic party here in wisconsin to potentially run so uh, i i do think that the democrats are going to end up with a solid candidate just because Ron Johnson is beatable, and this is a seat that they can pick up. Yes. Now, uh, uh, early in the week, uh, yeah, and you were coming on, we were talking about this, and I saw, uh, I think it was on um, Political Wire, they had about Alex Lassery um, getting in the campaign, and he had like a two-minute and 20-second you know, bio video, or really not a bio mm-hmm. video, really more about him seemingly leading building the uh, – uh, Milwaukee Bucks uh, basketball arena looks like a fine facility, but it was a lot about that. Um, I did see that he was married on his website with a picture of his wife, who and they never give her name, and she never speaks in that video, which I thought was kind of unusual. But he does have the money from his family because his father is the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. Is he just maybe a cycle too early in running? I absolutely think so. And I think this is the wrong race for him because I do think his advantage, Mr. Lazary's advantage, is that he can essentially self-fund the campaign. But this is not a campaign. If you're running against Ron Johnson, you know, money is not your concern. Money is not your concern at all because Democrats around the nation are going to be extremely motivated to defeat Ron Johnson. And so the money is going to be coming in in droves from all over the country. So I think Lassery, you know, I, I, th- I think he wants to run for something. I don't think this is the right race for him. The fact that he can self-fund is an advantage for him in any other race, perhaps, besides this one. Um, ultimately, I don't think he'll be the nominee because you'll see some stronger candidates jump in the race. Yes, and maybe he could then step down to the and maybe go for the race that they're uh, leaving to run for this race that's not as high profile. Um, but I just noticed that. Now, one other thing about his video that brings me on to another topic. He talked about earning your tax break. You know, like if, if the state says, well, if you bring this industry to our state, we'll give you this much tax break to build a factory, whatever it may be. And he talked about earning the tax break with jobs. And it immediately took me to Foxconn. And mm-hmm. um, and I know not, not a lot of folks may know about Foxconn, but it was apparently like a billion-dollar uh, supposed um, manufacturing plant for electronics that's based in um, Asia. I forgot if it's China-based or, or Korea-based, but they built this facility in Wisconsin, and it's just been um, not what the officials uh, were sold up in um, rural Wisconsin. Um, do you think that statement in, in, in last year's video alluded to Foxconn, and more generally, how are the, is the average Wisconsin, particularly in that part of Wisconsin, uh, viewing Foxconn and other like future projects? 
So I think from a political science perspective, it's clear that Foxconn has been a spectacular flop here in terms of the amount of money that was invested in it, how municipalities have put money into the building projects, and just how little we've gotten out of it in Wisconsin. So I, I think that just from sort of a straight-up policy perspective, there's no question that Foxconn has be just been a total flop. But when it comes to campaigns, it was kind of interesting, you know, because Foxconn did not play a huge role in either of the last two campaign cycles. And I think that's because the Republicans and the Democrats both kind of wanted to focus on other issues. Maybe the Democrats thought, well, if we focus on Foxconn, then we'll be accused of being job killers. Republicans saying to themselves, if we focus on Foxconn, then that'll open us to attacks about how the project has underdelivered. But uh, I, I do think that public opinion has soured on Foxconn overall. The Marquette polls show a pretty divided public on Foxconn. Um, but I think as time goes by and it becomes clear that this is hardly the game changer for the Wisconsin economy that it was sold as by Scott Walker, as time goes by, I think that, you know, there's no question that Foxconn will be in many ways the symbol of sort of a bumbling attempt by the government to reinvent and reinvigorate the economy here. Yes, sir. Well, I'm going to pass this on to Catherine, who will then pass it for Tim, because there's so many other questions to ask about politically in the Badger State. Catherine? Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate it. I'm uh, originally yeah. from Michigan, so I like to talk about Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's feels a little bit like home to me. Um, so this week um, you had the um, President Biden visit. Uh, I think it was this week, right? Yeah, just the other day. Yeah, it sure was. Um, he was in Milwaukee a couple days ago. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of focus by Democrats on We had the convention uh, such that it was <laughs> uh, there. <laughs> and then now he's – this was, what, his second uh, – you know, trip outside of D.C. and he came to visit Wisconsin. So uh, what, what's behind that? Is, do you think that's just trying to solidify Democratic uh, power in Wisconsin or what, what's going on there? I think a couple of things are going on there. First, I think Joe Biden realizes that these 2022 elections are really pivotal. Uh, I mean, they're pivotal all over the place, but they're especially pivotal in Wisconsin because of that critical United States Senate race. You know, one of the few opportunities where the Democrats really are on offense and are not defending seats, but rather have an opportunity to pick up a seat. And also, we should note that Governor Tony Evers, who has just been in constant conflict with this Republican gerrymandered legislature. Uh, he is up for re-election in 22 as well, and that'll be a really pivotal election. So I think Joe Biden understands that there are key elections coming up here in Wisconsin in 2022. Plus, when you look ahead to 2024, I mean, there's no reason to believe that Wisconsin will be anything but a nail-biter. Uh, that is sort of our, our past. That is no doubt going to be our future. Uh, I, I just see no way that this state really goes decisively in either direction in the near future. So I think I think that this state remains pivotal politically for for many many years to come. Well, that I mean that it's it's kind of fun to be there. I mean that's how we were for the first time in a long time here in Georgia. And uh, you know, like you said, like when you were talking about the Senate race, 
all that money that's going to come in. Uh, we certainly understand that. Uh, I think the latest, the latest tally was $800 million was spent on the runoff for our two U.S. That's a lot of money. It is. <laughs> and I, I, it is. <laughs> and I, I think that, uh, you know, that it is a nice economic stimulus for us here in Wisconsin to be a swing state and just a perennial close state. So uh, let's, let's just say that uh, let's just say that uh, the, the TV and radio folks that I work with around here all got nice bonuses for the holidays. <laughs> yes, I, I'm sure they did here too. I'm, I, I'm sure they, are, they they did. Um, so, do you think that? So, are we going to be see a big focus from the Democrats on Wisconsin going forward? I mean, is, are we going to have uh, uh, the president visiting more, and uh, you know, other people, you know, making uh, visits to Wisconsin, and you know, how how are we going to uh, make sure that we can reclaim that seat? Like that's, I guess that's the. Uh, sure, sure. I well, just... I, I, I think it's going to take enormous investment by the Democratic Party because what sort of the weird thing about the 2020 election, one of the one of the many weird things about the 2020 election, <laughs> but but just one of them was that neither party really solved their most important problems in Wisconsin. Um, the Democratic Party's problem is that they are getting absolutely crushed in rural Wisconsin. And that did not used to be the case, but it is absolutely the case nowadays. Meanwhile, the Republican Party is just getting annihilated in Milwaukee and more and more in the Madison area, you know, where they're not they're not just losing. They are getting destroyed. And so you then you have the suburbs, which are, as we know, kind of like the new political battleground in, in many states, but especially here in, in Wisconsin. And so what ultimately made the difference for Joe Biden in 2020 was that he had a massive margin of victory in the Madison area. Plus, he was able to scoot the margin in some key Milwaukee suburbs a little bit in his direction compared to what Clinton did. Now, none of that really should give the Democrats a lot of comfort long term because it was such a close election and only decided by a few thousand votes. So I think that the Democrats have to reckon with a couple issues. How do they stop just getting absolutely stomped in these rural areas? And how do they keep building on their success in these suburbs? If they can do that, I think the Democrats might actually be able to eke out kind of a, a longish term advantage here in Wisconsin. But certainly those are going to be tough trends to, uh, to those are going to be tough tasks to pull off. Well, I think those are the same challenges that, you know, we're seeing in many, in many states. I mean, I think we have some of that here. We've managed to get some rural and, uh, and suburban areas more solidly Democrat, but not very many. And um, I think that's sort of the national challenge for the Democrats. And uh, I'm old, so I um, remember when it wasn't like that. Uh, I mean, I remember, it seems, it feels to me like Wisconsin was always a Democratic stronghold until, what, 20 years ago? Um, so 
it's going to be interesting how we uh, manage these because they're, they're very different needs between suburban and rural um, America. And we have to sort of find that balance between them to satisfy the voters. So it's going to be interesting going forward. And now I'm going to pass it over to Tim. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good evening, doctor, and thank you for being with us again tonight. Um, My I wanted pleasure. to talk to you a little bit about Governor Evers. He's he's having some interesting times up there. Him and the state legislature right now are in a battle royale over their response to COVID-19, and central in this battle is the argument over mass mandates or not mass mandates. The legislature does away with them. The governor reimposes them. Who's winning that battle right now, and who's winning it in the court of public opinion? Well, with well, with Governor Evers and the Wisconsin state legislature, it's not a question of if there's just a bloody battle going on. It's a question of like how many bloody battles are going on at a given time. <laughs> and in this case, it is over the masks. And, and the legislature has just really let the governor run the show to a large extent during the pandemic, they went nine months without passing a bill. And this is theoretically a full-time state legislature that we have, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a full, I guess, full-time in name only, you could say. But they have picked fights with Governor Evers that are politically strange. The most recent data that we have on the mask order comes from the Marquette poll in October, and 70% of people in Wisconsin favored a requirement for people to wear masks in public in that poll. I really doubt that the numbers have changed a lot since then. So I thought this was a really strange fight in many ways for the Republicans in the Wisconsin state legislature to pick to to try to over, make that their signature issue after nine months of not passing any legislation to make that the issue that they would go to bat on, that they would take the governor to the mat on. It was a really odd political move, but I do think it reflects the fact that this Republican Party is so entrenched in its majority because of how gerrymandered the districts are that in many ways they can defy public opinion without a whole lot of consequence. Now, we'll have to see what happens, obviously, with this next round of redistricting and how that plays out. But for now, the Republican Party in Wisconsin, at least in the state legislature, can do unpopular things and not really suffer any consequences because it is so, so gerrymandered. So a heck of a democracy we've got here. Speaking of unpopular, I grew up in a union household. Now, you know exactly where I'm going with this. I know about Act 10 and, you know, what Scott Walker did. Uh, And Governor Evers has proposed basically a rollback of Act 10, which, among other things, would, you you know, it gutted collective bargaining rights for public employee unions. And your state was the birthplace of public employee unions. Is Mm -hmm. there any chance? that this GOP-controlled legislature will will even entertain a a, a bill to come to the floor about this. 
No, they, they, they won't. And I, I do think that this was an example of Evers taking a position that is maybe politically advantageous for him with his party as he heads into re-election. Really? There's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of things in the Evers budget proposal. We are heading into the biannual budget process. There's a lot of things like that partial repeal of Act 10 that are going to be tossed aside pretty darn quickly. Uh, and ultimately... Act 10 casts a long shadow on Wisconsin politics, um, both mm-hmm. in terms of the policy consequences, the destruction of collective bargaining rights, and, and you know the the real the steep decline of unions here in Wisconsin, plus the overall nastiness of politics here. I think is another important legacy: the fact that you had friendships and and relationships get frayed because of Act 10. Uh, politics took on a whole new tone in Wisconsin as a result of Act 10. So I think it does cast a long shadow here. It's not going anywhere policy-wise. It still casts a very long shadow in terms of the consequences that it's had, both in terms of unions here in Wisconsin and in terms of just the rough and tumble of Wisconsin politics. Mm. Speaking of issues the governor's latched on to, of course, drug legalization, especially marijuana, is is a very popular item to be discussing in politics in practically every state in the country. And the governor wants marijuana legalized. Is there any chance that you might get some bipartisan activity on that one? Yeah, that was a very interesting proposal by Governor Evers here to not only legalize medicinal marijuana, but to also legalize marijuana for recreational consumption. I think the recreational Mm -hmm. proposal is dead on arrival with the legislature. I do think there might be some movement to be had in a very small way, some movement to be had when it comes to medicinal marijuana. And Wisconsin does have some of the strictest marijuana laws in the nation. So I think that the public is actually would tend to be on Governor Evers' side here. And we see that more and more where support for marijuana legalization is rising. And I mean, especially medicinal marijuana is just overwhelmingly popular. I think this is a great example of how the Republicans are going to defy public opinion here. I don't think they're going to really entertain this proposal to legalize marijuana. And like we talked about, they can do that without really any consequences because of the gerrymandered districts that they have. But it does allow Governor Evers to take a popular position and to use that as fuel for his 2022 campaign. So I think that this is a pretty savvy move by the governor to set himself up for re-election, knowing that the legislature isn't going to play ball and that Tony Evers can in many ways use the obstruction and the lack of cooperation from the Republican legislature as an advantage in his re-election bid. Mm. Now, speaking of his re-election bid, you mentioned the name earlier in this broadcast I want to bring up now, and that is Rance Priebus. He is yep. considering running for governor next year. Now, if he runs, would he be a lot to be the GOP nominee? I think he would have a great shot, and certainly because he could bridge sort of the Trumpian wing of the Republican Party, obviously because of his status as Donald Trump's first, uh, his first chief of staff. So I think that he would have the backing of the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Plus, he can also, he also speaks the language and sort of looks the part of the establishment 
Republican Party. So I think he can bridge the two sort of competing factions of the Republican Party in a way that someone like Paul Ryan probably can't. So there are people in the Republican Party who are interested in the nomination. Uh, There are people who are basically in the race at this point. But I do think Ryan's Priebus would have a great shot if he does run. And as we talked about, you know, I, I do think Tony Evers would start as a slight favorite to win re-election. But, you know, we know in Wisconsin that it's, you know, plus or minus five points the margin either way. And so, you know, whatever happens, it'll be a close election. But I do think Ryan's would have a great chance at winning the Republican nomination. All right. And I'm going to go out with, with, with this off the kind of off-the-wall question, because when I read this story, to be honest with you, I thought, well, this has to be satire. No, it appears to be real. You actually had a pro-Trump priest in Wisconsin who was <laughs> live-streaming exorcisms of voter fraud. <laughs> we a, have I mean, our share. <laughs> so so this is this is true um and we've had our share of we've had our share of wacky folks here um yeah. we had actually a priest in the area here who said that if you vote democrat you're going to burn in hell so um sorry to inform <laughs> the listeners of that uh but yeah yeah we we have our we have our share of characters here uh just like any other state uh but but yeah, yeah you know, I, I guess I guess that's one way to combat voter fraud, right? Exorcisms. <laughs> With that, I'm sending it back to David. David. <laughs> yes. Well, Anthony, we thank you for coming on the show and sharing all this great knowledge about Wisconsin with us. It, before we have you on again in the future, if um, our listeners want to read your work, we know you're teaching day to day, so that, of course they can enroll in the college. But if they want to find you on social media or elsewhere your writings and thoughts, uh, let us know. Yeah, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, so follow me on Twitter for uh, I kind of keep up to date, keep things updated with my professional stuff, my commentary around here. And uh, yeah, well, uh, a very uh, a very cold greeting for for all of you from here in Western Wisconsin. It's uh, it's 28 degrees right now, but that's about. 40 degrees higher than it's been. So it's practically balmy out here right now. <laughs> well, stay warm then. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank, thank you, you sir. All right, Dr. Anthony Chagoski from University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. Always good to have him on the show. And, of course, Wisconsin's a state that, you know, it's getting more interesting, and it has a high-profile Senate race. It has the slate of elections. Um, and, and then, of course, it's become very much a purple swing state. Well, let's talk about um, uh, one other place. Let's go to somewhere a little bit warmer uh, towards the end, and that's the state of Florida. Um, Ron DeSantis uh, keeps making news, and not always for good reasons, very divisive reasons. I think he may be the most divisive governor in the nation. Um Pandemic, you know, he's been very um, slow to respond, you know, worked the numbers, kind of locked out the Tampa Bay press, didn't want to put mass mandates in place, wanted to invite everybody to come down. Now that the vaccines are getting out there, he's playing politics with the vaccines. If people are critical of him, he, he threatened to pull vaccine access for those entities. And this seems like this goes beyond 
you know, payback at the ballot box. This seems like you can't play politics with vaccines since it's health care. This seems like something ought to be done sooner than 2022 based on Ron DeSantis's actions. Catherine, when you heard about this, what, what did you think? I thought it was ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's, it's horrifying that he would, you know, threaten a county. If they're not happy with the way the distribution is going, they can, you know, they can pass on getting any, any vaccines at all. Like when did criticizing our government lead to a death penalty? (laughs) You know, like, uh, you know, lack of vaccine and and additional risks. I, it's he's just uh, I, I I can't even I, I'm I'm so tired of these um, people who get elected to office and 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 can't lead and can't uh, can't I'm I i do not know I, I'm I'm dumbfounded by it and very frustrated by it especially in florida where we have such a high population of um aged and uh people in uh precarious health conditions and it's just it's ridiculous he should be ashamed of himself yeah tim your thoughts on what governor ron DeSantis is doing with the vaccines well I mean, you know, we know the statistics that blacks, for instance, are being vaccinated at lower rates than whites, but are one and a half times more likely to contract COVID-19. And he is prioritizing uh, public stores as a place to you know, get people vaccinated, which is fine, but they are disproportionately located in majority white areas. And when asked about that, he just brushes it off. We know, don't brush it off. What about the other areas? What about areas that don't have public stores? And believe me, there's plenty of those. Uh, your your county has one. Mine does not, for instance. Uh he and, and then he goes about opposing Biden's plan, talking about crazy things like FEMA camps. Said the, he said the government's going to come in and set up FEMA camps, and we don't need it. What is he even talking about? Of course he's being political with it. He's been political with the thing since the beginning uh, when he announced that, oh, yeah, Florida's going to go wide open. So, and, and, of course, Trump was loving it and eating it up. Um, and and then he has events for seniors in well-to-do retirement communities, which is fine, but most seniors in Florida are not in well-to-do retirement communities. What, what about everyone else? It does look very much like he's playing to one group at the expense of another with this vaccine, and it is as Catherine said, just shameful that that he would do such a thing. But as you said, David, he is by design, I think, one of the most divisive governors in this country. Yeah, and I think definitely it is by design. I think he sees as if if Donald Trump or a Trump family member doesn't run for president, 
somebody's going to have to fill that vacuum, and, and he's trying to set himself up for that situation. But he's got to get through 2022 first. Uh, and then correct. How, do his, how does his state um, view him? And these kind of actions are not going to be looked at positively because um, Donald Trump's not going to be on the ballot, and it's going to be more about good government. Um, and, and that's going to lose him some votes. Is it enough? I don't know. And then I, we need to know more about how the uh, let, let Democratic vote is shaping up. Can, that? can I ask a question, a, a serious question here? Uh, Donald Trump, the main reason I think he lost that election last year was, was his failure to properly address uh, three crises, chief among them, the response to this virus. Isn't, isn't DeSantis doing exactly the same thing? Isn't he? Didn't they learn anything? Isn't he setting himself up for the same fall that Trump took, perhaps for the same reason? Possibly so. I mean, he he is making the gamble that you have to become first and foremost popular the Republican base that wants to, you know, own the libs. And that's their whole, you know, reason for being. And then everything else is secondary. And they're just assuming you can maximize the base and not play to any kind of swing voters that might be persuadable in the middle. Um, And in this case, that leads to very poor government. Um, You know, I mean, almost dishonest, uh, you know, government when you're, you know, withholding vaccines. Um, But speaking of the the complexion of the Republican Party, and this does relate to Ron DeSantis as well, Ron DeSantis um, is going to fly the flags at half-staff. I guess it's tomorrow for Rush Limbaugh's funeral. We've only got a few minutes, but Rush Limbaugh um, passed away. And, you know, he's somebody's relative, so I'm not going to speak ill ill of the dead, so we'll move on from there. Um, But, you know, he was this huge persona in the Republican Party for about 30 years now. And his radio show was going, I guess, until the last few weeks, um, even with him being ill. Um, That is going to be a major vacuum in the Republican Party. How does that get filled? Any ideas, Catherine? I have, I, you know, I, I saw that on the list of topics, but I didn't really have a chance to think about it or look up any you know ideas that anybody has um you know my first my first thought or my first fear was that uh former president trump would do it but i don't think he's got the energy or willingness to put the effort into anything like that i mean it's much too much work um so you wonder like does does you know sean hannity or Eric Erickson or one of the, you know, current, you know, loudmouth jump in or do they redo the show and make it, a, you know, have some different kind of format or uh, it'll be interesting to see how that void gets filled. Um, you know, I, I never listened to it, so it's not a big loss for me. No, I mean, it's not content I consume, but I know it's content the other side consumes. Uh, Tim? Yeah. Well, um, 
for the time being, it's my understanding that they're not going to try to replace him. Uh, his production company says that for now they will air, I guess what you would call best of Rush shows, um, probably for several weeks. Guest hosts will fill in to help out, but the voice you'll hear most of all on the show will be the actual voice of Limbaugh himself addressing issues from earlier shows. Um, and, uh, as you mentioned or Catherine mentioned, Trump was actually asked about this, apparently, but he demurred. He didn't give a flat no, but, you know, I'm I'm with you, David, when, when I, I, I don't believe Donald Trump would, would sit down and do this for three hours. They will most likely try out new hosts in hopes of finding a replacement, but my goodness, who? I, I, yeah, I have no idea. And I think y'all are absolutely right about Big Don. I don't think he has the attention span. He couldn't show prep, um, and so therefore he's out. But could some combination of Little Don and Kimberly Guilfoyle and Eric Trump, uh, possibly Laura Trump, could they all kind of do some kind of situation where they take blocks of weeks at a time, fill in from each other, and then you know Donald Trump could call in as frequently as he wanted to, Kind of like um, you know he did on Fox and Friends. To me, that would be um, a scenario that's plausible, intriguing, scary, whatever you want to think about it. Um, but you know, the idea of them playing reruns for a while kind of tells me that they're wanting a placeholder um, so they can figure out what they want to do. They don't want to just create that vacuum and then move Sean Hannity up three hours because I'm. Assuming, from what I understand, is like Rush Limbaugh plays like, say, 11 to 2 or 12 to 3 or somewhere in there, right. and then Sean Hannity goes like 3 to 6, and there's right. like a six-hour block of the two of them. So if you just push Sean Hannity up, you'd still create a vacuum for that other hour, and I would I would think that, that drive time would actually have more listenership in some ways um, – than, you know, when people are still at the end of their work day. But I'm not sure how their audience works, and, and everything's on demand now. So if you want to find it, you can find it, uh, whether it's your work or not. Um, but it, it is going to be a question because that's such a big force within the Republican thought um, world. Well, um, been a great show. Thanks again for Dr. Anthony Shagoski coming on the show. Until next week, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest.